Right now, it's time to get into God's Word. Let's, let's uh, turn in 1 Thessalonians. If you're a guest with us, we, our practice here is to prayerfully choose a book of the Bible and then work our way through it. And uh, that's what we're doing. We're in 1 Thessalonians. If you're using one of our Bibles here, it's on page 987. We're going to be looking at ver- into chapter 5, but I just want to remind us uh, by way of reminder, look at the back of uh, chapter 3. So it's chapter 3, verse 11. This served, remember, this was a transition from the first part of the book, which is kind of personal and uh, historical, to the second part of the book, which is very instructional. He's instructing about certain things. And this transition was a prayer. Look at it, chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So, we've already seen that the first part of chapter 4, he, he picked up on those themes in his prayer about our love for one another, our personal holiness. And then beginning last week, we get into what he ended his prayer on. Look again at chapter 3, verse 13. At the end, it says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So, he's prayed about that, and now he's instructing about that. We, we saw the beginning of that, like I just said in uh, in last week. But so what I want to do is read the passage from last week and this week because it's all it all fits together. And then we're going to look at chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. And it's all about the coming of the Lord Jesus the second time. He came, he's ascended back into heaven and he's going to come back. And that's what his instructions are about here. So chapter 4 verse 13 is where I'll start reading. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning they've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Then he shifts chapter 5. He's still talking about the second coming, but a different question. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 
So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who, are, who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Amen? Amen. So, in this passage, I see that there's a different question going on. Uh, and he raises in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, this question now concerning the times and seasons. And uh, there's, an, there's a desire among the Thessalonian Christians to be ready when Christ comes back. And so this whole passage is about being ready. And I see in it four angles. It's like it presents us four different angles from which we can look at our readiness for Christ's return. So let's look at them, one, two, three, four. The first is that uh, he shows us the wrong way to get ready. This is the wrong way. Let me read one to three again. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It's interesting the way he, he starts. He says, now concerning, you know, and then he mentions the times and seasons. It's almost as if some people think that when Timothy had left uh, Paul and gone up to check on the Thessalonians and then came back, he might have come back with some actually a list of questions that they, that they were dealing with. Or if there wasn't an actual list, Timothy himself is relating to, to Paul some of the issues that are going on up there. And uh, there apparently was some real, some misunderstandings and uh, some maybe false excitement about the coming of the Lord. This question that they have in chapter, that he's addressing in chapter 5 is different than the back end of chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4 last week, they were worried about their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died already. And they're like, wait, if, if we're alive when Christ comes, but they've already died, are they going to lose out on something? Remember that from last week. So then he dealt with that. This is a different question in chapter 5. The different, this question is basically... Well, when is Christ coming back? Amen? What about the times and the seasons? I want to figure this out. Can we figure it out? When, when is he coming back? Now, let's not be too hard on our Thessalonian brothers. After all, we are going to see them. We're all interested in that question. Amen? If you believe that Jesus is coming back, which is what the Bible teaches, then you can naturally be interested in the answer to that question. Well, when is he coming back? But maybe the Thessalonians, to their credit, maybe they were, um, they're not just being curious, but they thought perhaps that by knowing when he's coming back, they could be more ready for his coming back. Like if I know when, then I can make sure I'm ready. 
Well, this has been the temptation uh, in every generation since the Lord went back, is this idea about trying to figure out when he's coming back. Especially when something happens interesting with the calendar or uh, in terms of social events. There's big events happen and people begin to try to figure out when Jesus came back. I've read in history that uh, as the year 1000 approached, 1000 AD approached, uh, it, that generated a lot of turmoil in parts of Europe as people saw the year 1000 as something significant and people were saying Jesus was coming back at that time. In the 14th century and also in Europe in that time where um, much of Christianity was, not all of it, but much, there were some widespread plagues and famines and that led many to think that the end was near and to make predictions. Some of you remember in the 1970s, the book by uh, the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Uh, some of us old guys, we remember that. And although <clears throat> uh, Hal Lindsey scrupulously avoided setting a date, nonetheless, he left a clear impression that 1988 was the year. <laughs> you know, he kind of didn't say it exactly, but he said it. Edgar, I don't know if some of you remember this guy, Edgar Wisenant, he gave 88 reasons that Christ's coming would happen between September 11th and September 13th in 1988. I remember this, the booklet came out, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And then, as you, you probably noticed, Jesus didn't come back. <laughs> so he announced with even more conviction that 1989 was the year. And after that, we've never heard of them since. You remember what happened, all the craziness that happened as the year 2000 approached. All sorts of predictions, mixing together the, that Y2K scare with Bible predictions. And there was even this book about 50 events, a booklet, pointing to the return of Christ by 2000. And I quote, part of the advertisement was, get your copy while there's still time. Listen, guys, we've got to be gullible. Let's think. We're handing them money because they think, they think that everything's going to, money's going to be no more use to anybody right after 2000. But, so go ahead and give it to me. And then there was Harold Camping. That was the most recent. You remember that in 2011? Um, he had a big following and declared May 21st of 2011 was the date and then it came and went and he realized then with further study that it was a spiritual thing then but the actual was October 21st and I don't know many of you guys remember this October 20 it wasn't that far ago people were selling their homes they were all going up on top of mountains and waiting and all this was going on because Jesus they were trying to predict when Jesus came and all of this in contradistinction to what Jesus said in Matthew 24:36 but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. I had um, this magazine came my way. I didn't, I didn't go get it. I know you can't see it. It's end time. I don't know anything about it. Well, you'll know what I think about it in a second. <laughs> end time. But this is a special edition, and it has a big picture of a nuclear explosion. You see this? 
And it says, two billion will die. And then in the parentheses it says, in the next 12 months. Two billion people are going to die. But they, he, he has a little caveat. See, he's trying to be sneaky. He knows that you're not supposed to say the date. So he puts a question mark. In the next 12 months? And that's the message, right? So when you get into the magazine and you get to the actual article... Here it is again. Two billion will die. The only question is when. And here's the author's note before the article. This article is dedicated to explaining why I believe two billion, billion, I'm sorry, not million, two billion people will die in the next 12 months. Can I guarantee the time frame? No. Could it be 24 to 36 months? Possibly. But in my opinion, the most likely time for the fulfillment of this ominous prophecy of the annihilation of one-third of the human race is the next 12 months. This is dated September of 2007. (laughs) This is a wastebasket, and this kind of stuff is garbage. Don't give them a nickel of your money. I don't even know who they are. Somebody probably in here does, but that's, see, Paul is responding to them. They're saying, what about the times and the seasons? And Paul's saying, Paul is saying, you already know enough. I already actually told you enough. You see verse five? Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. I've already told you what you need to know. Jesus, uh, Paul probably was so aware of this, but um, there's another place in the New Testament where those two words, times and seasons, are together in the same sentence, and they're referring to the second coming. It's in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, where Jesus is about to, to ascend back into heaven, and he's there with his disciples. And listen, in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What about the, all these end time events? Is it, is it now? Like, they want to know. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The same two words. It's not for you to know this. You're not supposed to know this. So don't, don't, that's not the answer. So what Paul is saying is, The wrong way to get ready for Christ's coming is to try to figure out when he's coming. That might be a natural response, but that's the wrong response. You you don't know. We don't know. Let's look at the first, some of this. There's a few key phrases here. First of all, verse 2, we see the phrase, the day of the Lord. It says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, the day of the Lord, and we don't have time this morning to unpack that, but that's a huge phrase, and it's used from Old Testament through the New Testament. And involved in that is that this is the day of judgment. So there's a, a judgment coming. It's not merely judgment, though. It's also a deliverance of God's people and judgment of those who have refused to become God's people. And so there's, it's an ominous day. It's a, it's a day to be feared if you're not ready. And then, we've already seen it in verse 2, there's this phrase, a thief in the night. 
And this idea that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, meaning suddenly and unexpected. That's the, that's the, main, the main idea. Sudden, his coming will be sudden and unexpected. And you, you see even there where it says people are thinking there's peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them. Then he uses this third phrase I want you to see, the second picture, that is, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Again, um, now, I, I am continually reminded that I, as a male, have very little to say about childbirth, uh, about what it's like, or anything like that. But, uh, but um, all Paul was saying here was that it's not only is it unexpected, like the thief in the night, it's inescapable. Once the labor pains start, you're going to have a baby. You know, I mean, this is, this is, this is as much as my observations are valid. <laughs> and, and that's the idea. He says, you're, it's, it's unescapable. It's inescapable, unavoidable. And, and what's happening is he's saying here with these two images of the thief and the labor pains is that Christ is coming back when you're not expecting it and it's inescapable. The day of the Lord is coming. Amen? The day of the Lord is coming. John Stott said, the Thessalonians thought they could most easily get ready for Christ's coming in judgment if they could know when he would arrive. But actually, it's, that's, that's irrelevant because we're, we don't know when he's going to arrive. And in actuality, there's another way to be ready. So that's the wrong way. So the first point is there, there's a wrong way to try to get ready, but there's a right way to be ready. So that's in verses 4 to 8. Let me read that. But you are not in darkness, brothers. See, he's saying, but you, 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 you're not in darkness. And then he calls them brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice verse 4 starts with the word but. It's a contrast. He says, but, or and he says, but you. So this is a, he's going to say, this is a, he's setting it up. I told you the wrong way. I showed you that. Now there's the right way. Let's, it's in contrast to that. And he uses these contrasting images of light and darkness, night and day. And in verse 6, let's see, near the end of the second half of verse 6, he says, but let us keep awake and be sober. That's how you're ready, is you're awake and you're sober. We're supposed to live a certain way. We're supposed to be awake. In other words, we're supposed to be aware at, that Jesus is coming. And so we're aware of that and we live in light of that. Amen? Do you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? Amen. Yeah, the, the Bible says it. Sometimes we may wonder. But no, this is true. He, 
He's coming back. So those who are not of the day, but of the darkness, where we all used to be, but God's ransomed us out of that. But they're not thinking Jesus is coming back. They're asleep to that. But we are to be aware. And then he says we're to be, we're to be sober, which means it comes back to one of the other things, one of his other issues in his prayer in chapter 3 is we're to live holy lives. He mixes being awake or asleep is not a moral issue. But now being drunk or sober, that's moral. That's a moral issue. So he says we're to be living lives that please the Lord. We're supposed to be living holy lives, allowing God to change our lives that we're living soberly, not drunkenly. And then uh, we get to verse 8. Because in the beginning of verse 8, it says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And we could say, okay, Paul, this is great. I'm tracking with you. But could you explain a little bit more? What do you mean, like being sober? Because we know you're using it like a figure of speech. Um, uh, So what do you mean by that? And he says, okay, this is what it's like. Verse 8, halfway through. Having put on... The breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith and love and hope. That famous triad. Love, faith, and hope. Whichever order you want to put it in. But there we have it. He says, you're to live lives of faith and hope and love. And, and as you, that's, that's what it means to be sober, is to make progress in that. That your life is being changed by God to live that way. One theologian said it this way, Clear thinking about the end times is designed to help you live as true Christians in the present. Amen? It, the, the way it's supposed to transform us so that we're, we're really earnest to live as we ought to live. Faith. Faith is trust in Christ and in his teachings. Faith is not, not only the, the, the faith that you exercise, that you put in Christ when you first become a Christian, when you first trust him. That's faith. But faith then is also how you live. You enter your relationship with Christ by believing and trusting. And you walk with Christ by trusting, by trusting him. And then there's love. Having received the love of Christ, we become conduits of his love to all the people that cross our paths. Can I remind you what that love is supposed to look like and how important it is? Let me read a part of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Everybody who crosses your path should feel that. Amen? And in, the, in, in as much as you're making progress and God's changing you to be that, that description, and so that the people that you bump into, they feel that. That's what they get from you. You are being ready for Christ's coming. That's how you stay ready. Faith, love, and then hope. Hope there's a, is a certain confidence that uh, the outcome, in the outcome, that you are going to see the Lord, as we sang already this morning, that the, our hope is firm. It's not just wishing or, you know, playing the odds. It, it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm confident in this. That's the way the scripture uses that, that word hope. Listen, there's another famous passage. It's the first part of Romans 5. I'm going to read it to you. Just, it's just uh, five verses. Listen to how faith and hope and love all mingle together. But they mingle together in, in real life. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen? That's a whole nother sermon. But there's just good stuff there. The faith and hope and love. Back to First Thess now in chapter 5. There, some have asked, I asked, I know, when I was reading along, I'm reading along. And then you get this image of armor being, being worn, this breastplate and the helmet. It's like, whoa, that was a quick shift. Uh, where, did, where did that image come from? But the more I thought about it, the more it actually fit is that he's saying his coming is going to be like a thief in the night. You weren't ready. Now, you're supposed to be awake and sober, kind of like the guy who's standing guard at night so that the thief doesn't surprise him, right? And, and the one who's not surprised, you're on duty, you're awake, uh, you've got your armor. It's faith and hope and love. That's, that's how it fits in what Paul is saying. The nighttime surprise is not a surprise because we're ready. It's sudden. In one sense, it's unexpected. We don't know the day, but we're ready. We're awake and living as we ought to live. Interesting to me that the image that Paul gives us is not of a scholar studying the news headlines and the prophecies with the aim of fitting them together. That's not the image. His image that he gives us is of a soldier 
standing alert and awake, living the way you ought to live. That's the right way to be ready. Now, another angle from which we can look at our readiness, he goes on then to speak about the found, what I'm going to call the foundation of our readiness. How can we be ready? The day of the Lord, like I said, and like the scripture says, has, has an element of judgment in it. it. And I know that I'm not perfect. I've sinned against God. I continually sin. I, I'm not what I ought to be. How can we be ready? We're, I'm guilty of sin, and I'm also prone to sin, right? I've got the, the judgment that I've, in, I've deserved, but I also have this inside of me. I, keep, I have this inclination to sin. We call it the sin nature. It's still there inside of me. So how can I be ready? Well, we got verse 9 and 10 to answer that question. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He gives us two points here. First of all, there's God's determination, and then there's Christ's death. Look at them in turn. God's determination. He's saying in verse 9, he says, God hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. If you've come to faith in Christ... It, it, it shows you that God has determined to save you. And when he's, what he's begun, he's going to bring to completion. He's determined this. He's, he's chosen you. He's determined to save you. And he didn't start all of that to stop it later. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged with that. Amen? He, he's, those who are saved can take verse 9 and say, hey, God has not destined me for wrath, but to obtain salvation, meaning that ultimate salvation. And I'm going to read to you just a little bit from John chapter 6, uh, because beginning at verse 37, because Jesus spoke this way often. Before I say this, let me say another thing. Sometimes we frail human beings with our our, our self-centered perspective on life. We hear the word salvation and, and we're thinking about it as right now. And it is. But the completion of our salvation is not right now. There's something way bigger. The, the, the whole bringing it all to fruition and, and completion. That's when Christ comes back. Amen. That's called our salvation. And, but Jesus talked about like that all the time. John 6, 37. Jesus is speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I, we can say amen for that. Yeah. Amen. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Hallelujah. God has determined to save you. You're not saving yourself. He's saving you. And, and he's determined to do it. And what you're experiencing now in your life with him, that's just a foretaste of the end. And he's saying, you, whoever's believed in me, I'm going to raise you up in the last day. I've determined to do it. Wonder of wonders. And isn't this wonderful that, that Scripture always puts our final rest, our final confidence concerning our salvation is always put on God and not on us. We, we're participating. We're believing in all that, like Jesus said. But the confidence is in God, not, not in us. So then, back to First Thess. He talk, so it's in God's determination, but then it's also in Christ's death. Verse 10, who, Christ, it says, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. He died for us. He died for us. Uh, there's a place that my wife and I go on vacation, our family sometimes, and there's, when you use it, there's a lockbox outside. And if you have the combination, so if you put the combination right, the lockbox opens and you get your key and you can get in. So there's four, four numbers and, and you have to know these four things. One of the numbers, one of the pieces of the combination to really understand Christ's death, his dying, is the word substitution. It, the, the concept of substitution in his death starts in the Old Testament. It's supremely illustrated through the sacrificial system there, and it goes up through Christ's death. He's saying here, Jesus Christ, who died for us, he substituted himself, that's the for us part, for us. So that the guilt that you have incurred because of your own selfishness and rebellion and all your, your sin, the guilt that you have was put on Christ. He substituted himself for you. And on the cross then, he was punished for your sin. And then he's taken it away. Christ died for me. God has determined to save me. And therefore, I can be ready. Amen? I can be awake, and I can live right, and I can be ready. It'll come suddenly. It'll be in one sense unexpected. Whoa, it's today. But I'm going to be awake. I'm going to be the soldier there with the shining armor. I'm going to be, okay, let's go. Not, oh, no. Judgment is coming, and I'm not trying to be funny with that. Oh, no. I'm not ready. That's what Paul is saying. That's the foundation of our readiness. And then, lastly and very quickly, there's the context of our readiness. And too bad I'm doing this quickly. It's actually really important. Look at verse 11. Therefore, okay, what do you do with all this? Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And now he's speaking to this group of believers that meet together and live, you know, they're sharing life together. They're struggling together as Christians in a non-Christian place. And he's saying, how, how, what's the context in which you're, you're ready? 
it's not you standing by yourself. He switches the image now. He's getting, he, he's abandoning the image. The, the image of the soldier standing guard by himself. That served his purpose. He's moving on from that. Now he's saying, we're in this together. Amen? You're, you're, you're encouraging one another. You're building one another up. That's how we're ready. We're staying in this with each other. We live our lives with Christ, but with each other. Uh, the faith and the hope and the love, we're feeding off of each other. We're, we're, we're our brothers. We are brothers and sisters being ready together. It's not by ourselves. Amen. We need each other. I need you and, and you need me. That's the context of our readiness. Now, in conclusion, I didn't read the whole thing in Acts 1. I wanted to wait to the end. Remember I told you those words, times and seasons, were used there. Let me read the next verse. <clears throat> well, let me read it all together. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And then here it comes. You know this verse. But you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Amen? Well, when is it? When, when is it going to be? He says, you're going to receive power. The answer is encountering me by faith and having the fullness of the Holy Spirit in you who produces the faith and the love and the hope and living like that with our eyes open. That's the answer. Leave that stuff in the wastebasket. That's the answer. And he enables us by his Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we love and praise you and thank you and ask, O oh Lord, <clears throat> that you would um, enable us to walk with you by the power of your Holy Spirit, with eyes open, expecting you, although we don't know when you're coming, expecting you, and may we live lives of faith and hope and love and be ready. We pray and thank you for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.